Good morning. It's my privilege to introduce our guest speaker for today. Pastor Tim St. John is the counseling pastor of Lighthouse Community Church out in Torrance. He has a biblical counseling certificate from CCEF. He loves seeing how the gospel is applied to counseling sessions to people who are hurting. And this morning, he's going to be speaking about how the gospel and God's word applies to those uh, who have been abused and how we as a church can love and care for those people as well. Would you welcome, would you join me in welcoming Pastor Tim St. John at this time now? Well, good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Christ Central. It's a joy, joy to be with you. I really love the, the theme of shalom that you guys are walking through in this, your sermon series right now. And shalom is this, this beautiful picture of, of hope and the, the wholeness and the, the, the beauty of the fullness of being with Christ and the fullness of redemption, the, the, what he wants for us, what, where we are headed together. But to talk about shalom, to be honest about shalom, it involves also being honest about what is broken around our, our lives, around us, everywhere we look. And so you've been looking at different types of brokenness and how we start with that brokenness and move toward shalom. And so that is what we're going to be talking about today as we look at abuse, just the brokenness of abuse and understanding what it looks like in and around our church, your church. So as we approach today's topic of abuse, I know there's a spectrum of ways you as a church relate to this topic. So I just want to say a few words to each of you. If abuse has been something you have faced, I just want to thank you for your courage in being here this morning. As we walk through this topic, I pray that the Spirit of God will strengthen your heart with what is true about who you are and who your God is. If you've been a helper to someone who has gone through the darkness of abuse, thank you for your help. Almost all who suffer abuse will not find a way out without helpers. Someone standing in their life and advocating for them and thinking practically about their safety. Or perhaps you're here and you know you have been abusive, whether to a spouse or to a child. You know, I'm thankful that you're here as well. I pray that today you'll find the first steps in a path toward real change in repentance. Or perhaps for you, abuse is something you've only read about or seen in movies. Abuse may feel like this marginal struggle that's really removed from your lived experience. It seems too terrible to actually exist in real life. Maybe abuse seems vague and largely under, 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 undefined. It's maybe overused in our culture today. Well, my hope is that we would be able to define it clearly from Scripture this morning so that you can both identify it and be in a position to care for those who have suffered and gone through it. I just want to share a little bit about my background. I, I'm the, as Pastor Dan said, I'm the pastor of counseling at Lighthouse Community Church in Torrance. And over the past uh, several years, God has given us the challenge to counsel some very difficult domestic violence cases. As a counseling pastor, I've met with men who believe leadership in the home means that the husband's preference always wins. Because of the pride and selfishness of their hearts, I've walked with men who beat their children to a pulp, who attempted to kill their wives, who spied on their wives. 
I've counseled men who controlled their wives' eating, their clothing, their makeup, the streets that they were allowed to drive on, and even set limits on their Bible reading. I've sat with men who refused to allow their wives to use their hands when they talked, who didn't allow their wives to, uh, the privilege of showing emotion in conversation. I talked to one man who refused to let his wife clean a certain bathroom for decades because he liked how bad it smelled. And of course, I've met with men who hit and pushed and chased and threatened their wives. And those are just the men who agreed to sit down with me and meet with me. I've spent much more time with victims, those who have been on the receiving end of all of that sin and much, much more. But the victims usually come in for counseling because they see themselves as the problem person in the relationship. That's kind of the crazy making of abuse. The victims come in riddled with guilt over all that they have been doing to displease usually their husbands. And slowly we work to help them see that they are in fact suffering at the hand of someone else's sin. Abuse is not something we're talking about now because it's a, a growing problem in society. This is a problem that has always been there and is finally getting some exposure. The National Center for Injury Prevention and Control states that one in four spouses live in an abusive marriage. And 85% of abused spouses are women and that largely abuse is underreported. And what is so scary is that those statistics are the same both in the church and outside of the church. But there is hope. Let's, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 103. And I just want us to read actually the first 11 verses here. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 11, the Psalm of David. Listen to the hope of our Lord's love. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. There is hope. We just heard in Psalm 103, verse 6, that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So how does he do that? Well, there's many ways he is going to do it. I know through Christ Central here, but he established a foundation for working righteousness and justice in the gospel. Christ suffered abuse. He was maligned. His life was regularly threatened. He was tortured. He died and he rose again so that 
even those living in the most dangerous, abusive situations could know his love. Let me tell you about his love. It's a love that will only ever tell you the truth. It is a love that will never manipulate you. It is a love that will never abandon you. A love that fully understands and accepts you. A love that promises to carry you through the darkest valleys of this life by his grace with an experienced, nail-pierced hand understanding fully what you are going through. This is the love of our great Savior, our great God, to those who suffer. But it's not a love that only meets us in our suffering, but also equips us to help each other. My hope for those who suffer abuse is that churches would understand it and be equipped to bring Christ's love to each other. So Christ Central, I just want to thank you. You know, I've written on abuse. I've done workshops on abuse. I've helped build support groups for victims. But you are the first church that I have met who is willing to dedicate a Sunday morning worship service to this topic. You know, as we were singing this morning, I was just thinking of all the victims that my team has met with. And we were singing that God works things for good. I couldn't help but think all their suffering. Like the fact that I can stand here and that you would want to learn about this topic... This is part of the good of all that they went through. So thank you. I pray that many churches would learn from your desire to care. Your church gives me hope. So to help equip you and encourage you and just serve you this morning, I'm going to simply talk about what goes wrong And what goes right when it comes to power in relationships. Power is the focus because none of this would happen without power. So we're going to look at abuse as first a power that presses down. And later we're going to look at love as power that lifts up and restores. So first, power that presses down. There are many helpful definitions of abuse out there. And they all say similar things. Uh, But our counseling ministry has come to define abuse this way. It is a pattern of shaming tactics used to exercise or maintain power or control over someone. Where the victim regularly feels unclean, exposed, rejected, and dependent on their abuser. So it's a pattern of shaming tactics used to exercise or maintain control Uh, Power and control over someone where the victim regularly feels unclean, exposed, rejected, helpless, and dependent on their abuser. The the goal of abuse is, is controlling someone by throwing them off balance at the core of who they are, their personhood. There's this loss of their sense of identity as their world now has is forced to revolve around the one who has established control over them. We use the word pattern because establishing power over another person rarely occurs through a one-time event. Now, there can be incredibly abusive moments and events, right? He only ever sent me to the hospital one time. Oh, he only ever pushed me down the stairs one time. Those larger expressions of abuse, when they occur, 
there are likely other smaller patterns at work. But if one of those larger patterns, one one of those larger incidents do occur, very little needs to be done to instill fear and to control someone after that has happened, right? After a major event, just a look at their victim or just a sigh in their presence is enough to immediately um, captivate their attention, control them with their fear and anxiety. Other shaming tactics could involve name-calling, saying demeaning things, criticizing frequently, constantly pointing out failure, like to cook or to clean, making fun of shortcomings, insulting family and friends, driving recklessly to frighten, using uh, your voice or body language to intimidate, threatening suicide, refusing to leave someone alone, sulking angrily, refusing to talk for days, or even acting like a victim to increase their partner's guilt. These actions and more we call punishing behaviors or shaming tactics. They're designed to fill a victim with confusion, doubt, fear, guilt, worry, anger, depression, sorrow, so that they're entirely dependent on their abuser. They need their abuser to tell them what is up and down, what is left and right, how to think and feel, how to know what's real. And as long as the victim is held hostage in those patterns, it puts the abuser in a greater position of power as the victim becomes weaker and more dependent on them. Leslie Vernick describes an abusive relationship this way. She says, one's personhood, dignity, and freedom of choice is regularly denied, criticized, or crushed. This can be done through words, behaviors, economics, attitudes, and misusing scripture. Now, you might be thinking... I've done some of those things. Am I an abuser? But an important question to ask yourself is, if you've done any of those things that I just mentioned, what happened next? What did you do next? If you or I get angry and we yell at our spouses or our kids, what comes after that? We ask for forgiveness, right? We humble ourselves. We repent We tell others, like our accountability partner, so there's more light shining on our darkness. Those we hurt are not isolated in our sin. We ask for prayer. It doesn't mean that it never happens again, but we respond to our sin with humility and repentance. In in an abusive relationship, you don't repent. Yelling is part of the larger pattern of isolation and controlling someone. You don't ask for forgiveness or humble yourself or invite accountability or change. In fact, usually the victim is going to be going to the abuser and asking for forgiveness for displeasing you in some way. To discern abuse, it's helpful to look at three aspects of this sin. Three levels of assessment. Intention, behavior, and outcome. And this is where scripture really helps bring light into darkness. First is intention. What does God's word say about the desires of my heart? What do I want that I wasn't getting? Is it respect or a desire to be understood? What do I fear losing in this situation? Control? If I lose control, do I feel like things are going to drift into chaos and that's unacceptable for me? Was it a selfish or a selfless desire? What was my motive? Remember that God wants us to to help us see our hearts. His word is... It exposes the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. His kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. 
So we need to know what is going on in our hearts. What is our intention? The second level is behavior. What, what fruit are we bearing? Did I bear good fruit in the situation? Were my actions good fruits that demonstrate the Spirit's work? Right, if I look at like J- James 3, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, do I see myself, do my actions appear there? Like, would I see peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, open to reason, patient, self-controlled, kind, not insisting on my own way? Or is that what would d- describe me in a situation? And then third is outcome. And this is vital to understand. Intention, behavior, and then outcome. What are the consequences of what I'm doing? Are others flourishing and growing as I use my power and influence to serve them? According to Psalm 128, verse 3, a man who fears the Lord, right, who makes Christ central in his home rather than himself central, right, his wife will be like a fruitful vine and his children like olive shoots. Right? There's this flourishing that we should expect if we are making Christ central. This does not mean that we control the outcome of our kids' salvation or anything like that, but when we are controlled by the Spirit of God, when Christ is the center of our home, then our family members should flourish, not wither. Just think when you're evaluating an elder for ministry or an overseer, using 1 Timothy 3, right, you would evaluate his home life. Is his home flourishing? Are they doing well? Because before he can take care of the household of God, his own home needs to show signs of health and growth. So when we're investigating abuse, we look at these three levels, intentions, behavior, and outcome, because fruit doesn't lie. But sadly, it can be difficult to see the negative impacts of abuse unless you've known that victim, that person, for a long time. Often, it takes a friend who has known the victim for a long time to perceive negative changes in their life. Brothers and sisters, that is why it is so important for you as a church family to be acquainted with each other, to know each other so, so well. We have to be in each other's lives if we're going to notice changes and ask important questions. If we're going to say, why is that expressive person so much more withdrawn? She was always so joyful. Why does she seem so timid and anxious now? She was such a gifted artist. Why does she not draw anymore? She was such a wonderful writer. Why did she stop blogging? As long as an oppressor is able to use their power to control another person, there will no longer be room for that person to do anything but to live for the one who is in power. You know, if you suspect child abuse, it's, of course, important to report it. But for spousal abuse, it's not that simple. So if you are seeing those changes in someone, changes for the worse, start by asking your friends some questions like this. I think that we have a slide for this too. Do you feel free to give input in decisions at home? What happens when you disagree with your spouse? Do you ever feel fearful around your partner? How does your spouse express their disapproval? Do you have a voice in your marriage? Their answers might not immediately indicate abuse, but they can be starting points to understand how power and influence are used in their relationships. A clear example in scripture of using power to press down and harm are the Pharisees. I put up a list of how they are 
influenced, they, they use their influence in society to isolate and control people. I got this list from my friend Darby Strickland's book, Is It Abuse? I highly recommend her book. Matthew 23, verse 4. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus describes the actions of the Pharisees as placing heavy, difficult burdens on people's shoulders and not lifting a finger to help. Do you hear that? Jesus is describing power that presses down. And why do they do this? It made an entire culture of people dependent on the Pharisees to know how to live. It gave them power. So Christ's woes against the Pharisees in Matthew 23 are harsh because so much is at stake. Those who followed the Pharisees were burdened with the wrong things, and it kept them from following God and seeking his kingdom. Just look at this list. This is just all from Matthew 23, right? The Pharisees, they shut up the kingdom of God, verse 13. They stole from the vulnerable, verse 14. They, they led uh, converts down the wrong path, Verse 15, they made them children of hell, converting them to an untrue religion that preached performance over our relationship with God. In verse 15, they promoted technicalities that could be used to get out of oaths that have been made. Being, they were obsessed with trivialities and neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness, which left people vulnerable. They were full of greed and self-indulgence, and they persecuted those whom they were called to shepherd. The Pharisees spoke guilt-inducing, shaming words over a culture that inflicted great harm as they bent God's word. They misused his name. You see, they did all of this in the name of God to, mani to manipulate people and to actually lead them away from God. But they could only get away with this because of their position of power. You know, they might have told themselves, we want to help people love God. We want to... Uh, they thought, might have thought their actions were righteous, but the outcomes don't lie. Christ is naming all the outcomes for that culture in Matthew 23. Not only did the Pharisees cause suffering through their shaming and financial extortion, but most of all, those who followed the Pharisees, they sought the kingdom of the Pharisee, and they were turned away from the kingdom of God. You know, I, I've sat with husbands and tried to help them see that their wife is confused, anxious, afraid, that their kids are struggling. And they didn't see how the health of their home had anything to do with their leadership. But especially for leaders, in any setting, we look at the health of our team. Right? We look at the health of those we lead to understand better how well we are leading. We are looking to see if, if they are encouraged. If we are using our power to serve and build up and to support and to encourage and strengthen, then we should expect that team that we are leading to get stronger and healthier and to be happy. I mean, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but husbands and fathers in particular, we are called to be the lead servants in our homes, to initiate a culture of servanthood, in the home, to expect greater accountability before God for the health of our home. So how are we using our position to love or to press down and harm? Well, that's what we're going to explore next. How do we use all that God has entrusted to us to lift others up and restore them 
That is the model Christ left us. He used everything at his disposal to serve, to honor and restore. And that's our second point, power that lifts up and restores. Whenever abuse occurs in the church, we've learned at Lighthouse that it absolutely takes a team approach to respond. It takes accountability partners to keep an abuser in check. It takes an advocate for the victim. And it takes a pastor to oversee the care. The advocate will be trained to discern the lethality of the situation. We use the Johns Hopkins Lethality Index to understand danger. A simple way to do that is we have victims download this My Plan app on their phones. <clears throat> and it has, a lethality, it has that lethality index built into it and a safety plan built in. And we'll have the advocates go through that with them. The advocates traditionally are people who represent the victim's voice to the team and help the team consider legal options. With adult victims, it is never as simple as just report it. You must make sure the victim is in a safe place and, secondly, that they want you to report. Otherwise, they could be put in greater danger. That's why spousal abuse is not a mandatory reporting category in the state of California. If you'd like more help thinking through the legal issues and with finding an advocate, I'd recommend talking with a social worker who's certified in advocacy or your local women's shelter who will likely have advocates. But as churches, we don't want less than safety. Safety is the starting point, and there's a lot of things in our culture, actually, thankfully, to help ensure safety. You know, I've had to counsel and advise and do consults for uh, abusive situations in Japan and in Myanmar and in other locations. They don't have nearly the, the social supports that we have to ensure safety. But as churches, we want more than safety. We want survivors to have a vision and a hope for redemption. So in addition to considering the legal steps, here is a definition we like to use in our counseling ministry when it comes to long-term advocating for victims. We say an advocate is a relationship defined by helping someone lament, helping them begin to see their story as God sees it, and slowly helping them see their Redeemer's voice as the most truthful, powerful, cleansing, covering, and accepting voice in their life. And as you can imagine, it is slow, and it takes a long time. But as you look at this definition, hopefully you can get the sense that this is a calling for all of us. You can do this. You are certified, you are credentialed to be an advocate for redemption because Christ is in you, because you are in a story of redemption. This is why the church is the best place for an advocate relationships to exist. Because we aren't going anywhere. This is slow, and we are a family that is together long-term. We are committed to walking together, growing together, and building each other up for the long haul. At its most basic level, an advocate is someone who uses their relationship to lift up and restore. This is the dynamic of love that we see in Christ. There are many passages for seeing this love in Christ, but for the sake of time, I just want to consider a few glimpses of this power from Psalm 103. Look at the first few verses there. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And if you have a Bible where it says benefits, I want you to write relational dynamic. He forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good, and works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. There are so many ways God uses his power in our lives, his authority in our lives, and I love how every single one of them is called a benefit. That is the only way your God relates to you, is he benefits you. That is... There is no way that God uses his power in our lives that doesn't benefit us. That's the only relational dynamic he has with us. Just benefit after benefit after benefit, and we forget about the benefits. We minimize the benefits. We close our eyes to those benefits, but he continues to give them to us, benefit after benefit. Can you imagine reaching into your parenting tool belt and thinking, Which benefit have I received from God that most aptly fits this moment? What benefit from God should I use? What benefit of the gospel can I connect to this moment of my child's life or my my roommate's life or my spouse's life? Is this a moment for compassion or gentleness or forgiveness or mercy? I have so many benefits. Which one should I use right now? Does that sound like a new way of relating to someone? That might sound impossible, but because Christ is in you, there is this power to display a love that lifts up rather than harms and presses down, even in the most difficult moments. And when we do this, we are using our power to to give those around us a taste of shalom, a taste of redemption, a taste of wholeness. Think of the expression on your face the last time someone sinned against you particularly if it was your child, and it's the same wrong that they've committed a thousand times, that you've corrected a thousand times. Maybe you're witnessing selfishness, the incessant word, mine, 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 the hitting, the hurting words, the lying. What does your child receive from you in that moment? What do those close to you receive when they wrong you? Do they get benefits? Think about how, you, how long you might stay upset. Do you ignore them? When you suffer wrong, do you withdraw? Do you physically move into another room, put in your headphones, pretend not to hear, pretend they don't exist? Do you respond with short answers or not at all? Sadly, even with our children and with those close to us, we can isolate. In the face of someone else's sin, especially our children, Can you draw near and talk to them about God's steadfast love that is so great that nothing they do will ever change your commitment to care for them? And if you have regularly shut down, withheld your affection, or moved away to punish or to make them feel bad, can you seek their forgiveness and remind them that even when you fail, they have a God who will never pull away and will never withhold his love? Men, if we are honest Does our authority, does the way we use our power in our homes, does it look like a crown of gold for ruling and reigning or a crown of thorns for sacrificing and serving? Are we the lead servants? Are we the first to get up from the table when someone needs something? 
Are we quick to be aware of the needs around us and to have empathy for those who are around us and to offer help? Do we look out for the interests of our wives and children and count them as more significant than our own? I'm going to pause here because it is so vital for parents, especially fathers, to get this right. Do you oppress? What is your child's experience of your authority? Will they look back and consider all of the benefits of your love, all the ways your love lifted them up, taught them about Christ, moved them deeper into enjoying God's love? Or will your authority be more like the Pharisees, burdening burdening your children with the wrong things so that ultimately they turn away from God's kingdom? If you would like help considering how to do this, Start by taking an inventory of your advantages in, in any of your relationships. But in particularly in relationships where you have leadership. Consider how you're using those advantages. Christ had every advantage in all of his relationships, right? He had all the power in the universe. And he, had, and he used all of it to serve, to love, to pour his life out. So if I consider my relationship with my wife, my wife, G, she wishes she could be here today, um, but she's, she's actually out. She's gone for the weekend. A friend who turned 50, she's celebrating with him. I heard that's where Pastor Harold is too. Uh, he's celebrating someone's birthday as well. But if, if she was here, um, I, have to, I want her to know I'm doing an advantage inventory for our relationship. I need to note several things. I'm taller than her. She might like that advantage, but I'm taller than her. I'm stronger than her. I'm faster than her. I've had a lot more training in theology. I've had training in framing theological arguments. I'm the main source of our family's income. I'm a pastor at her church. And not only that, I'm, I'm also her friend's pastor, her closest community. I have influence over her friends. So what is that? That's at least eight advantages. So if my goal is to win in any situation, I have a a number of advantages I can leverage. So it's vital that I talk about how I use my advantages with my accountability partners and with her. I also need to make sure that she has friends that she can talk with about my sin. Otherwise, she's going to feel completely isolated and feel forced to carry the pain of my sin all on her own. Right? For every advantage I have, I need to have a plan in place for how I will use that advantage to serve her, to love her, to lift her up, not to press down. This is vital for all of us if we want to imitate Christ who made himself nothing to serve us and to seek our highest good. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. This is a benefit that I keep coming back to again and again. The vastness of his love is a vital benefit as we seek to care for those who have been harmed by abuse. No matter how big a situation gets, no matter how dark a valley becomes, we do not lose hope because God's love anchors us and it remains steady, it remains strong, it remains bigger than the darkest situation, wider than the deepest chasm. 
I could lose my way. I would lose my way as a counselor without this particular benefit. I'm certain that your pastors here at Christ Central feel the same way as they bear witness to so much pain and sin and heartache and suffering and just the normal burden-bearing that exists in, the, in Christ's church. It is, should be normal for Christians to witness these burdens as we walk alongside one another. It should be normal to a certain degree for all of us to bear burdens like this. I mean, imagine if every person at Christ Central had four or five people praying for them, calling them, knowing their burdens personally. Imagine if no one was ever shamed or looked down on, no matter what sin they were confessing at a small group or accountability session. Imagine if suffering was never minimized, ever, but always met with compassion. Because of the gospel, every church has the potential to display the immensity of God's love and provide overwhelming hope to the hurting. Because of the grace of Christ, the church has this potential, this chance to help. We can bring a taste of wholeness, a taste of shalom, a taste of Christ into these relationships as we demonstrate his love. And we all need this. Without it, our churches will forget. We will forget the many benefits of God's love that he has entrusted to us, not only for our good, but for us to share with each other and for us to make much of his name. The great hope in each of our lives is that in Christ, we all have a story of redemption. Even those of you who have been abused, you don't just have a story of survival. You have a story of redemption, which means Christ is actively working in your life, even this morning, to give you grace, to heal your wounds, to restore, and one day you will fully experience shalom when you see your Savior face to face. But I am excited for how you will experience that shalom in smaller ways, day by day, conversation by conversation, as a church family together. Thank you so much for having me. Let me pray for our time. Father, we confess that we, as recipients of your benefits, your great love that has lifted us up, that has restored us, we have sadly failed to be ministers of those benefits. We have used our relationships to harm, to sin. Some of us maybe have patterns of abuse toward others. Lord, some of us have lived in relationships where we were isolated and controlled. We felt cut off. Lord, I pray that as we meditate on your love, you would lift our heads, that we would see Christ once again lifted up, and no matter the, the Mount Everest of suffering that is in our lives, or we would see, would we see the, the sun of redemption shining through behind that peak, Lord, that it would be bright, that the rays of light would touch our lives, that we would feel those benefits of redemption. We would remember your love that is true, that is life-giving. And Lord, we would learn ways to rehearse that redemption as a church. Lord, I thank you for Christ Central. I thank you for the relationships that are here. I pray that you would send this church forward with wisdom 
to know how to bring your redemption as they shoulder the most difficult burdens that exist in each other's lives. Lord, we do this because of what you have done in our lives. In your name we pray.